Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. There in the 41st Psalm, we find our longings after God described as thirsting. They're not a literal thirsting. You know what it is to thirst in a literal sense. Some of you are thirsty right now. Sorry to mention that. You know what it is. It creates in you a real longing for water. And sometimes it's hard to get it out of your head until you're satisfied by bringing water onto your palate then you're satisfied. But in the 41st Psalm, the psalmist takes something that we know in the earthly realm and uses it to help us understand something more important. Spiritually, a longing after God. I remember a missionary I was visiting and he told me of a time where he was leading a cycling group on bikes, and they were far from civilization, and he didn't bring enough water, and the group ran out of water as they kept pedaling and pedaling, perspiring, until it became actually life-threateningly dangerous for the group, and there was no water to be found, and he spoke of how that helped him to understand thirsting. Eventually, they found an old water pump that worked, and it saved them, but if you've ever experienced deep, strong thirsting, that is meant to help you understand Something deeper, a spiritual thirsting after God. Of course, it's important to understand that because Jesus, when he came to this earth, would say, everyone who drinks this water on an earthly level will thirst again. Can't satisfy you forever. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he's not talking about literal water. Because literal water makes you thirst again. But he says, there is a water that I will give to those who believe in me. And whoever drinks of that water, he told the woman at the Samaritan well, will never thirst again. And she thought, literal water. No. The literal water in this world and our thirsting for it is just a pointer to a greater thirst we feel for a greater satisfaction which only Christ can give. The same thing in Scripture applies to the sensation of hunger that you also know. And some of you know right now, blessed are those, said our Savior, who hunger. Literally? No. And thirst? Literally? No. For righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Again, taking something earthly, we all know hunger, every one of us, and using that to help us understand the aching that mankind, we feel in our souls for something more. And where will we find this something more, this righteousness from heaven? I am the bread of life, said Jesus. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. The point is that Jesus satisfies not our tongue, not our stomach. Jesus satisfies our souls in a more profound, significant way than water quenches the palate or food satisfies the stomach. I mention this because today we celebrate Christmas. 
And for many, Christmas is a time full of earthly satisfactions. There are real pleasures to be had in this time of year. Some of you have eaten a delicious breakfast. There were presents for you younger ones and older that were underneath the tree, brightly wrapped, lights everywhere, every night driving, looking at the lights. And these are meant to be a delight on an earthly level, and they're meant to cheer up the long, especially this year, cold winter. But Christmas time, like everything else in this world, points away from itself. Christmas is not just about the presents. It's not just about the happinesses we have here, because some of you don't even have those happinesses. For some of you, because of past memories, past losses, or something more immediate, Christmas is not a happy season. But Christmas was never meant to be satisfying in itself. Nothing on this earth was. Not food, not water, not Christmas. But it points us to something more significant. It points us to where our real longings can be satisfied. The lights that are hung upon houses point us to the true light that enlightens every man, Jesus Christ. The gifts under the tree, they point to the greatest gift of Christ himself. The family and the friendships, if you have those at Christmas time, point us beyond themselves to the fact that we have been welcomed to enter into the home of the triune God, his own love and to experience the greatest of all fellowships. So what we want to do this morning, this Christmas time, is to use Christmas and the earthly joys of Christmas as a platform or a ladder upon which we can climb and get higher into the heavenly realms to understand the highest joys and satisfactions that are found in Christ himself. That's what Christmas is about. So let's do that, and I've chosen for our text 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul is urging the Corinthians to contribute to a donation to poor saints who are in Jerusalem, who are in need. But we're not going to consider much of the context today, unusually. I just want to point out one thing he mentions in this verse as he makes his argument for why they should give. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Four. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is a Christmas text. When we read, though he was rich, in reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, there was never a moment on this earth when Jesus was rich, not in his earthly life and ministry here. It never happened. You remember when Jesus was first born, as we hear in the Christmas story, that not long afterward, his parents took him to the temple for cleansing, and they brought two turtle doves. And that was not to honor the 12 days of Christmas as a song, but those two turtle doves were given because in the Old Testament, if you were not wealthy enough to have a lamb for sacrifice, you could give two turtle doves. And so they did. Jesus was born into a family that was not wealthy, and he did not attain wealth at any point thereafter. There are some preachers who want you to believe that, but you will not find it anywhere in your Bible. Jesus was not a wealthy man. So what can be meant when it says here, though he was rich? It has to be referring to the time before the Son of God was conceived in the womb of Mary. 
He existed before that time, eternally as God, the Son of God, one member of the triune God, and we could refer to that period of time before He came into our broken, corrupt, poor earth as riches. And though He was rich, with the privileges of the full use of His Godhood, with the privileges of heaven above, and none of the difficulties of earth below, though He was rich in that way, he became poor. Not so much in a literal sense, although that's included. But what is meant by that is that he chose to be conceived in the womb of Mary in an incarnation, to take on human nature and to be born and set in that manger, in that barn, and then to live in our world. That is the poverty of Jesus Christ. And it was not for no reason. Why did he make that choice in our text? It's so that you, who believe in him, you by his poverty might become rich. As we'll see, that is not a promise that you will have a lot in your bank account here. Because <laughs> he didn't either. <laughs> but rich in a higher, greater way. That's what we're going to consider this Christmas morning. We want to see the riches that are yours if you are this morning in Christ Jesus. But to understand those riches, you have to understand first Christ's own poverty in coming to this world because as the text says, it's by his poverty that you are made rich. So those will be the two headings of this message. First, we'll consider the poverty of Christ in coming to our world. And secondly, we'll consider for any here who have trusted in him, your riches. Let's look at his poverty first. If we're thinking of what's meant by his poverty or he became poor, we could break it into three parts. Because the first way that Christ chose as the preexistent glorious son of God to impoverish himself was simply by the incarnation. Now, I'm assuming most of you understand what that word means. This is the only time we use that word is in this context referring to Jesus we use other words with a similar root like carnivore, that's somebody who eats meat or flesh, so corn. This is from the Latin, so incarnation means to become flesh, or in our case, to take on human flesh. The incarnation means that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on human nature, which includes a human body, flesh. That's the incarnation. Though he was in the form of God, Paul writes to the Philippians, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus never stopped being God because God cannot cease to be God. At all times, even in the manger, the Son of God was, as God, God. But you see in Philippians 2, it says he humbled himself, emptied himself. How? By taking something he did not have before, a human nature. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Not Jesus stopping being God, but the fact that even as God, he took on a human nature and became the God-man. One person with two natures beyond our comprehension. But that's Christmas. And this was, in keeping with our text, a becoming poor. 
say, well, didn't he become rich? He took something that he didn't have before. <laughs> yeah, but look what he took. <laughs> he became a man. And in becoming a man, the Son of God willingly, as man, restrained the full use of his divine prerogatives, of his rights as God. So the Son of God in heaven forever knew all things, and as God continued to know all things, but if we're just referring to the man, the babe who is in the manger, does that babe know all things at that time? No. Not as a man. Not as a human. As a human, the babe knows almost nothing at all. When we've referred to the Son of God's riches before He was born into the world, He could do anything He wanted, but that babe in the manger cannot even feed itself, cannot even dress itself, cannot warm itself against the elements. Left alone, it will die. And we say that is the Son of God. So you can see how an incarnation is a becoming poor, in that in taking on humanity, the Son of God impoverished himself because he did not make full use of what was his. Just imagine this, because Nicodemus, you remember, was offended by the thought that even an adult human would go back and become a baby human. Even that thought was offensive to him. And he said, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, if that's an amazing thought that an adult human might enter and be born a second time, how much more amazing that God would enter into the womb of Mary and be born as a creature, a creature fashioned by himself. Jesus was involved in the creation of the very body that he partook of. It is bizarre. It is almost unbelievable, except that by faith we do believe it to be true. This is a part of what is meant in our text by he became poor. It is his incarnation. He took on humanity. Secondly, what do we mean by Christ's poverty? We also mean that he lived a low life as a human being after he was incarnate. I heard just the other day a Bible teacher, whom I respect, make the comment that they thought that Jesus probably was very handsome during his earthly life because he was the pinnacle of mankind. But I immediately, as you might also, thought of Isaiah 53, which 600 years before the birth of Jesus predicted, quote, he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, things are likely different now that the Son of God is glorified in His humanity. So, perhaps now we may consider Him the pinnacle of man in beauty. But it wasn't true in His lifetime. Jesus, in coming into the world, involved in His own creation, could quite easily have made Himself one of the two guys in the Hallmark movies who are always vying for the main character. You know what I'm talking about? He could have done that quite easily with a nice jawline, very handsome, very tall. He had that option, but a part of him becoming poor was him making the choice actively that he would not come into the world with any beauty that we would desire. He didn't put himself above other human beings. He wanted to immerse himself into our very experience because, let's be honest, some of you here do have the jawline and you are born according to our cultural customs of what is handsome or beautiful and some of us simply are not. <laughs> We're all approximate, but some of us are further. 
Christ had the choice. If you had the choice, you'd make yourself beautiful. Christ had the choice. But in love for us, because he wanted to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, he made the choice to impoverish himself, even in his physical appearance. Of course, Jesus became poor in a literal sense as well. Before he was conceived in Mary's womb, he was quite clearly and explicitly the possessor of all material things. <laughs> He's God. But when he came to this world, he gave up everything. And not just to the level of you or me. You and I own things. We have private property. Many of us own houses or vehicles. Jesus didn't even have those things. Foxes have holes, he said, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was saying that even foxes in the field and birds in the sky were wealthier than he was. You might be looking to buy a home right now, or buy a new home, and maybe you find yourself troubled with inflation and the housing market. Jesus never had any of those concerns for the simple reason he never bought a home. He never owned a home. He wandered around dependent on the goodwill of others for his lodgings, for his food, for his livelihood. And on top of this, Jesus chose to be born at a time and in a location in the Middle East where we would consider it third world. There was no indoor heating. He didn't have that comfort. There was no anesthesia if you needed dental work. There were no modern comforts. The things that you opened, that you unwrapped today, Almost every single one of them were not present or possible in Jesus' circumstance. If there were any technology that make your life better, Jesus didn't have that. But he chose to be born then, impoverishing himself. He became poor, even though he was rich and could have chosen to be incarnate in our day or any day. Lastly, Jesus became poor by his death. And being found in human form, we read in Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, a fantastic Christmas passage, speaks of Christ's descent into the world, his emptying of himself, as if it were a going down. Starting in heaven, he empties himself, he becomes a servant, he becomes a human, but it continues downward because he's obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's when you hit rock bottom. It's so much like when we studied the book of Jonah. Jonah, as a rebel against God, starts up here, goes down to Joppa, finds a ship, goes down into the hole of the ship. The ship goes out to sea, goes down into the sea, gets eaten by a fish. It's as if Jesus, in pursuing us so that we might be rich, all of us are down there with Jonah in our rebellion, and we see Christ descending every step that we have taken, coming down, down, down to where we are. And it required him to go down into the lowest part of our moral abyss, into the evils that we perpetrate, that we find in our own hearts. That's where he went and died. And just like Jonah was three days in the heart of the earth, so the Son of Man similarly was three days there for us. This is an impoverishing of the glorious Son of God to go all the way to the point of death on the cross. 
And you remember that in fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, Christ, who already owned basically nothing, had nothing after his arrest except the clothes upon his own back, and then he lost those. And they divided his outer garment among the guards, and they cast lots or gambled for his inner tunic, which was sewn in one piece. Literally, how could Christ become more poor than he did when he hung upon the cross? You remember when the Apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, and the Romans were confused and took him away, and they tied him up or were about to interrogate him by whipping. And Paul said, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And this terrified the men who had tied him up. Because to have that exalted status like Paul did, to be a Roman citizen, freed you from the indignity of being flogged in an interrogation. In fact, to have the exalted status of a Roman citizen in the ancient world meant you could not be crucified. The Romans considered crucifixion so barbaric that they refused to, put, to do it on their own. So if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. But consider Christ. Is his status less than that of a Roman citizen in the ancient world? The Son of God, the King of kings, not a king, the King of the kings, Lord of heaven and earth, with such an immensely exalted status, far beyond anything Rome could ever confer upon anyone, and yet he willingly takes upon himself a crucifixion the Romans reserved for those non-Romans. This is what it means that Christ became poor. Even though he was rich in his status, but he became poor so that we could be rich. And that does lead you to that question almost immediately of why all of this? Why all of this dissent? Why all of this agony? Why submit himself if he is so rich to such poverty? I mean, it wasn't just a little bit of impoverishment. It was as much impoverishment as is possible in this or any universe. And our passage gives us the answer. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In this passage, the statement, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, is taken by Paul and is made exactly equal to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why being rich did he become poor? Here's the answer. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was a product of his own grace. Christ's grace is his own goodwill toward you. It's not him looking at you and considering just how worthy of a specimen you are, how great of a creature, how much you've avoided sin, how much you've loved others. It's none of that. It's Christ looking at you, seeing into your utmost, deepest part of your heart where the darkness rests, where the true rebellion lies. It's him looking upon your record in the past and seeing every wrong you've committed, having every reason to turn away his face, but within him glows like a hot coal, something that you and I could never put there, but something that has eternally existed within the heart of God. And it is grace, it is his tendency, if you will, to like us instead of not liking us. That's why Christ came to earth, 
So that you by his poverty might become rich means if he had not had poverty, you couldn't become rich. That would cost quite a lot of him, everything. But the grace within him was so strong that he was willing for his own glory first and for our good in enjoying that glory to come here and make us rich. Grace doesn't speak like this, I will stay in heaven and be safe. Grace says, I will come to earth for your sake. All that now remains for us in this message is to consider what's meant then by for your sake so that you may be rich. You might be sitting there saying, I don't feel very rich at all. <laughs> Either in my bank account, maybe not even in my personal life, spiritually, I don't feel rich. What does it mean that Christ, by becoming poor, has made you rich? What we are talking about right now in the next few minutes, are the higher joys that Christmas, hunger, thirst, everything in this world was crafted carefully to point you toward. So consider these riches that if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, no matter what other circumstance or fact is true of you, these things are true of you. You have these riches. Break them into two parts and consider first the riches that because of Christ's poverty you have right now. Paul told the Romans, through the Jews' trespass in crucifying, rejecting and crucifying their Lord, through their trespass has come to the Gentiles salvation. The Jews rejected Christ, crucified him. But because he was crucified, us non-Jews who believe in Christ, now we receive salvation. Then he adds this, now if their trespass means riches for the whole world, riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, that's us, how much more will their full inclusion mean? We believe at the end when Christ comes and there's a mass conversion. But here he's speaking of salvation, which is a consequence of the Jews rejecting and crucifying their Messiah. Out of that, he says, comes salvation. And then immediately afterward, he says, their failure, their trespass, out of that comes what? Riches. So when Paul is talking about riches, the riches that you have, the first and foremost thing he means, they're equated in his mind, is salvation. If you're in Christ right now, you have salvation. I don't mean that in a narrow sense, like you just don't go to hell. Like you went to an altar call, and signed your name, or said a prayer, now you just don't go to hell. And that's great, but boring and narrow, and not the way that the New Testament depicts salvation. Salvation, the salvation you have even right now, would be better portrayed as what many of you experienced this morning when you came out and there was your tree and underneath were all the presents. We could consider ourselves, if you are in Christ, this is for you, you can consider yourselves as having come out of your room and there is the tree of life and underneath all the presents of salvation with your name upon them. You open one and can you believe it? For you to keep is what we call justification. This means that, look, you have a criminal record before God. You know it. I don't have to convince you of that. Give it 10 second thought in your mind and you know that in your past, you have offended God by your sin. 
Many of us this morning have perhaps offended God, especially if you have young children. It could be a struggle. You have, ex- you have sinned against God, and there is no bleach in this world that can cleanse that stain from your record when the eyes of the Holy One peer upon it. But when you open that gift of justification bought for you by the poverty of Christ, costing Him His very blood, That justification means that this moment, the Father in heaven looks at you and sees a holy one. He looks at you and he doesn't see the unrighteousness of you. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his own son. If the Father refuses in in eternity to come to cast his own perfect, blameless son out of heaven, he will refuse to cast you out. If you have justification by faith in Christ, then you are counted entirely innocent. It's not that you've stored up a great deal of sins and Christ's blood comes in and scrubs and gets most of them out and says, well, the stain is still there, but it's not so bad, you can wear it. No. Cleaner than any dye, cleaner than any bleacher could make it, is your record before God. And I don't mean that later, although it's true, I mean that this moment. You might feel sinful and you can't come to God because, oh, you're you. You know you. You're you. And you've done that thing that you do again. And so you've got to go sit on time out for a while. That's not true. You are justified. It's one of the gifts. It's one of the riches that you have. But it's just one of them. So set it aside for a moment. Pull out another present and open this one. And you know what you find here? Adoption papers. It's not as if God in giving you salvation, simply cleared your record and had you go stand over there because he's uninterested in you. But Christ came to this earth and became poor so that you might have the riches of being part of the royal family of heaven. And so you are this moment. It's not just that you will be adopted. There's also a present adoption. The father is now your father. Christ is not ashamed to be called your brother. When he looks at you, whoever you are, When he looks at you, he's not ashamed to say, oh, my brother, oh, my sister. You are owned by the Father. You are owned by the Son. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. Many of you at Christmas time are reminded that perhaps your relationships with extended family are not exactly what you wish they were. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The most essential family that you have besides being your church family. But even that is just a pointer away to the fellowship that you have with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you've been adopted into their family. That is one of your gifts. Look, let's just open one more gift. There's piles and piles. We don't have time this morning to get into all of them. We'll just open one more, and you know what you find now? Freedom from the power of sin in your life, which before you knew Christ, it dominated you. You could only move your sins around, and now you can put your sins to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can actually change. You can actually grow. You don't have to be a slave to your lusts. You have been set free. It's only a matter of living according to that fact that you are free from not only the guilt of your sins, but you're free from the power of your sins. Who could ever afford such rich gifts to give you? Only he who in his infinite wealth, though rich, was willing to become poor, to impoverish himself, to empty his bank accounts, so that you by his poverty might have all of these gifts, might yourself be rich. 
Brothers and sisters, you're the richest people on earth this moment. I don't know what your ambitions are here in this world. Some of you are seeking to make a lot of money. Whatever. Look, you're already rich right now. Whether you make the money you want or not, it's somewhat irrelevant. You have the riches of heaven. If you happen to make money in this world, you will realize quite quickly that it is only a pointer away to something that actually does satisfy, because the money won't. What satisfies are these things, and these are the things you don't have to get. These are the things that in Christ you already have. You were not created to be satisfied with the physical gifts under your tree, and when you were a child, you learned that lesson, didn't you? <laughs> because nothing was more exciting than opening those presents Christmas morning, and nothing more disappointing than the next day when half the gifts were boring to you. <laughs> the next month when all of them were. Those are only pointers to something that satisfies. And it's Christ himself. But it would be wrong of me not to mention now in closing, the final kind of gifts you get, the final riches that are yours, but they're not fully in your possession yet. They are guaranteed to you, Christian, but you don't fully have them yet. We've spoken of present blessing now, Let's close by considering future riches that are yours. Paul prayed that the Ephesian Christians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, quote, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's you. So do you know? That was his prayer. It means it's not automatic, even for a believer. Do you know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among you, the saints? An inheritance suggests you don't have it yet. You're an heir. You're going to inherit something. Peter spoke of the inheritance we have this way, an inheritance that is imperishable, good, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you more secure than any stocker bond or cryptocurrency, quite secure, stored away in heaven for you, but of course it is in heaven. And therefore, you don't have full possession of it yet, but sealed by the Spirit of God, it is as good as yours, even if you're not experiencing it yet. Now, you might want me to explain for you exactly what the inheritance is that you have, and I assure you that with all my heart, I would like to explain that to you now, but I see dimly. Some of you perhaps... Some of you almost certainly see better than I do here. But we see dimly as in a mirror, not yet face to face. It's really like you've opened your gifts on this Christmas of salvation. And your parents have kept for you, your heavenly father, one gift in the garage or hidden away in a closet, and it's the big one. And it's brought out to you. And you can see the shape of this massive gift. But you haven't opened it yet. It's been kept away for you, reserved for this finale. And that's what we are, children, at that point in Christmas. We've opened the other gifts that we have, justification and adoption, all the blessings that we have in Christ. And here is the final grand one. Here is the great one that your Father has by the blood of His Son purchased for you and by His Spirit is eager to give to you, but it's not yours yet. So He brings it out of the closet. And at this point, we are the children looking at the gift, but we only see the outline. We can see something, we can see how large it is, we can see the rough shape of it, but we haven't opened it yet. 
But you know that anticipation is what makes Christmas Christmas. Most of the joy of Christmas is that it's not Christmas yet, <laughs> but that it will be soon. And that's what we're experiencing here. Scripture says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The Spirit grants us some dim sight of it, of what happens when we cross the narrow Jordan of death, when Christ returns to glory in his saints. What will be ours? Something so much greater than it's possible yet to imagine. But we have the anticipation. You can see the shape. We know some of it. You know there will be no tears. You know there will be no more mourning, no crying. There will not be pain anymore. Neither will there be death. We know that. So we're eager to open the gift. And yet it's so much more than that. Because we hear these echoes in scripture. Such as, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's what's hidden in the gift wrap. Or, again, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. By Christ's poverty, that gift is yours. You will open it. Ask me about it in a hundred years. I'll describe it to you. You will open it. And that gift is yours because Christ became poor. If you're a believer here this morning, I assure you that all the riches I've spoken of are understatement. I've not exaggerated anything. Go read it for yourself in the New Testament and Old Testament scriptures. These are the riches that you have. Some of us quite easily, more than others, can be distracted by material things. And some of us love the joys of Christmas, good, but don't let them overshadow the fact that your treasures are not under the tree. Those of you who are suffering in this season because Christmas reminds you of difficult things, the grief is compounded by the fact that others are happy and you have to bear your grief perhaps alone. I don't mean this lightly, but I do want to say that the joys of Christmas, as great as they are in this world, are nothing but pointers to the riches we are talking about now, that no matter how much you have suffered, they, these are yours and will be yours. Not everyone here is a believer, I recognize. And so for those of you who are not in Christ, these riches are not yours. These gifts sit under the tree but your name is not on them at this moment. And you may be wondering, in hearing of all these riches, how you can get them. How good of a person do you have to be to get these kinds of presents? How good of a child did you have to be to get your parents to buy you presents growing up? <laughs> you receive these gifts the same way that you receive any gift. Imagine that it's set here right before you. It is salvation in its totality set before you. And how do you get it? You reach out, you take it. Was that difficult? That was not difficult. You reach out. Ah, but I need to clean up my life first. I need to earn it. But if you earn it, it's not a present. It is a present because you don't earn it. You can have every rich, richness that I described here in this message. It can be yours this moment if you extend by faith a hand to receive what Christ has wrapped for you. It was his poverty, but that's been done. It's been paid. He's been sacrificed. Now the gift is wrapped and set in front of you, and you can have it. Why don't you have it? 
Extend by faith, look to Christ by faith, and the gift is yours. Then, and really only then, will you understand what's meant by a passage that says, Jesus, though he was rich, impoverished himself so that you, by his poverty, might become rich.